0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Natural Capital, the podcast from Galbraith. I'm Matt Finlay and I'm joined as always by Natural Capital and Carbon leader Elner Harris. Elner, welcome back.
1: Hello, it's nice to see you again.
0: Yeah, nice to be back on. Uh, we have got a bumper lineup again, Elner. Um, as we often do actually now, it, you know, there's, um, it's good to have people return. We are expecting the return of Martin Rennie, who of course was on the last episode. However, he's been tied up with other priorities. Hopefully he'll join us soon. Until then, I've managed to recruit Ian Hope who is head of Galbraith Rural. Ian, welcome to the podcast and welcome for your debut.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me along. I'm excited about my first podcast.
0: Good. Now, looking forward to having you on. Um, we've got a lot to cover today with the main theme looking at about a, re- a regenerative agriculture. But first, we're going to find out a little bit, a bit more about Ian Hope. So, Ian, can you tell us a little bit about your role here at Galbraith?
2: Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, yeah, so I head up the rural division of Galbraith. The rural division of Galbraith is probably the or is the largest um, across the business. We've got offices in uh, across the country in all corners and including Northern England. We focus on rural management and um, business consultancy, but that stems out to lots of other bits of work. From valuations to AMC loans, etc. So, there's not there's there's not one part of the rural industry that we can't serve with consultancy advice or property advice.
0: A little bit about uh, your role here as well. And you you were pivotal in bringing Natural Capital to uh, and Eleanor to Galbraith. I should say as well. Uh, yeah. Um.
2: I, I shouldn't take all the credit. There was a few of us, and we identified that that, that was a, there was a growing need for that line of advice and, and service for it to be provided. Um, we, we're all aware of the climate change challenge and Galbraith and our clients have uh, a duty to, to answer that challenge. Uh, we're fortunate that we're operating in a sphere where there is assets available in which we can uh, use utilize to almost assist in the natural capital challenge why because we we've got those assets they can be managed differently and better um in a, in a bid to sequestrate carbon or in, or in fact um prevent the release of carbon into the atmosphere so we're fortunate in many ways that uh, uh, as a sector that we can have an influence and we can make a change and as a business that's what we we saw an opportunity and not just to for our clients, but also for us to be able to see as a business that we, we can have an impact and we can influence change.
1: Um, I'm, I'm gonna jump in because um, when I was uh, appointed natural capital leader, I kind of, as I expected, everyone said, what's natural capital mean? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna introduce uh, what we've discussed as a new feature. And actually we thought Matt was gonna be asking these questions, but jargon buster, what does that phrase mean? When I started at Galbraith, um and i was introduced to ian new head of rural um i wasn't quite sure what rural meant um and just in case there are listeners who are thinking what's this word rural and he keeps using words like assets but we're really talking about farming on the whole aren't we farming is what we are thinking of when we say rural is it more than that well
2: i think it's more than that actually Eleanor. it's it's probably land use and so you if we're to talk about rural it's it's it is everything that sits out with our urban and urban fringes. So it tends to be more land-based management that we're involved in, or or advice. So I wouldn't say it's uh, just farming because as we're as we're talking about, there's more to to land use and management than just farming. So it, we we cover more aspects, but rural in its in in the very word is that it's it tends to be operating in the countryside, and it's, and what we can do um, with those assets to maximise the income generation for our clients, but also how they can manage it better going forward from an environmental point of view, which, funnily enough, will dovetail in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm coming from, from a forestry background, and forestry as is, is, is a business stream is distinct from rural, um, but, and historically the two have been perhaps quite a bit separate and, and done different ways, but maybe through natural capital and, and going forward, they're starting to work more and more together. And we're talking about, got more and more joint issues. Would that be? Yeah, a, that be a, I, d-
2: I, think, I think actually, go, yes, it is a fair comment. I think going back actually, a rural surveyor probably dabbled away in forestry and then forestry became quite a specialist topic. And that's, I, I would imagine that's what created it. and 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 maybe surveying as a whole tended to sort of specialise in and, and pigeonhole people into different departments. The reality is that it, it all comes back to land use and actually having a, a holistic approach to land use and all and having good informed people who can Work together with each other is important.
0: I mentioned at the top of the show was we talking about regenerative agriculture. Um, so, for the listeners out there, could um, you just explain a little bit about some of the pr- basic principles of regenerative agriculture? Ian or Eleanor, course.
1: i I'll leave it to Ian.
0: You can yeah. Uh, well,
2: well, I mean, it's a it, it is a buzzword. It's a, it's not an it's not an entirely new thing to the industry, and I think. That there's always a danger when a new word comes in or a new buzzword comes in that it can be it can appear daunting to the industry and actually we've got certain uh, adopters of organic policies for example who who tried to bring in change and and that was environmentally driven i think regenerative agriculture doesn't need to be a daunting task and and what i like about it is that somebody can dabble their way into it that you don't have to um you don't have to go full full into it at at uh, at one go and actually if we're being honest about it although it's it's adopting a lot of traditional techniques and bringing those back into farming that we are still learning about it and there is so much still to learn so if I'm being honest I think regenerative farming is probably more advanced in England than it than it is in Scotland but the climates are very different and actually what works down south in regenerative farming won't necessarily uh, work up here so we can't we can't just adopt the same principles throughout the country and that's where the learning part of it still we're still really at the, at the early part of the journey what is regenerative agriculture i mean it it really is about um, at looking after our soils first and foremost and going back to um you know building up organic matter uh so how do we feed our soils in a different way so we've become very reliant on man-made fertilizers actually how can we um move away from that and and effectively wean farming off man-made fertilizers and go back to sort of farm farmyard manures compost etc and um using clever rotations within cropping as well. So you potentially using more nitrogen, fixing crops. Uh, we, and that can dovetail with setting up um, wildlife corridors and strips and, and wildlife crops, which actually have a dual effect so that they're, they're, they're setting nitrogen, but they're also enhancing the bumblebee population, for example. So we just need to start and be a bit cleverer in how we rotate crops how we use our land better, uh, to, to good effect and then there's and, and then we, we can take that right the way through to the livestock sector where we maybe start to use mob grazing or do we go back to paddock grazing uh, scenarios so uh, in the livestock sector where traditionally we in all farming we have moved from large l- looking to have larger fields for example in the livestock sector I see us going back to having smaller fields where we can rotate grazings and then we can also start to build in different uh, pasture lays so that you're letting, you've got different species in it being grown in there that can self-fertilise, etc., but also have higher feed values.
1: Mob grazing. Um, that was another new, new phrase that I learnt when I started at Galbraithon. Um, I always thought it meant that you had your animals in a mob. But I think it, it's short for mobile, isn't it? Is that right? It means you. It, it, you yeah, it you is. Do it, rather, it means maybe like um, the original pastoralists that you're moving around your animals or like they would do in, in a natural landscape rather than um, keeping them in the same place all the time.
2: Yeah, so, so, so the principle is that you're putting, uh, you are moving that livestock onto new pastures and because the they're probably more densely uh, populated on that pasture. They'll they'll compete with each other for the, the grasses, or, or forage, and they will take it clean down. Where if you if you um, populate on uh, livestock on larger fields, for example, then and they're left to graze for the whole year. It's there's not the same competitive um, eating habits between the livestock, and as a result of that, not all the pasture. Or forage is being grazed down, so it's a less efficient um, method. And really, by mob grazing and taking the, the pasture down, you're actually uh, encouraging the animal to eat the whole uh, crop that's in front of them, and therefore it's more efficient. One of the damaging effects of um, continuous farming and and uh, the the way we have farmed is that we've degraded soils. So you. Regenerative farming is really about r- repairing soils and how can we um, introduce better policies so that, uh, in effect, we're actually sequestrating more carbon. The very nature of regenerative agriculture is that you're, you're doing less tillage, less cultivation, so you're not releasing carbon into the atmosphere as much and you're retaining it within the soils and going into direct drilling systems where, whereby you're doing the absolute minimum amount of tillage required to grow a seed and with precision agriculture now in GPS, we can effectively go into those same areas within a field and and cultivate those strips. That allows companion crops to be grown alongside those seeds, which again can provide a fertiliser. So for example, a clover can be sown in the strips um, out with the, the seeded areas. A clover sets nitrogen when it 's stressed, so when it, it it can receive a chemical or a herbicide treatment will stress that plant and it will set not necessarily kill it interestingly enough, but it will set nitrogen into the soil, releasing that to the the plants that we're trying to grow so there is some clever uh, adoptions that we can we can undertake to to combat uh, the, the use of uh, man-made fertilizer.
1: There's a huge amount that I want to start um, if if Matt uh, will let me jump in with some questions that I want to kind of unpack um, in this um, regenerative agriculture um, and um, the, the way I like to phrase it is in coming from my sort of philosophical conceptual point of view um, is, is I like to say regenerative provisioning because provisioning is the word for the earth providing what we need and then this is this term comes out of the um, thinking about the circular economy um, and, and the idea that over hundreds of thousands of years we've been just taking from the earth we've been chopping down the forests we've been abusing the soil um, depleting the world's resources and natural capital is about reinvesting But obviously we still need to eat, we can't just rewild everything, we still need to build our houses, we still need to produce clothes, so we need a way of producing the things we need that at the same time as producing also puts the carbon back into the soil, puts the life back into the soil, um, puts the biodiversity and the pollinators back into the landscapes um, at the same time. So instead of um, exploited areas, you're actually doing it in the same place, which is a really appealing idea and provisioning. Is, is the word I'm trying to use instead of production because we're not talking about production versus conservation. We're talking about provisioning in a regenerative way. To put Ian on the spot, and I'm trying to remember them as well. But in arable, um, arable systems, there are five principles, aren't there, of regenerative provisioning that that have been developed, and that's a kind if, of if, recipe for regenerative. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. Actually, it's, it's 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 there's four basic principles, and that's. <laughs> That's increasing soil fertility, biodiversity, water retention and cleanliness, and soil carbon sequestration. So in, in effect, without using the buzz words, that's what we've been mm-hmm. talking about for the last few minutes. And, 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 and naturally, that, they all flow from the practices that we adopt. And it's quite interesting in the context of the summer that we're experiencing. And we've got drought throughout the country and throughout mainland Europe that actually if we could we as a result of some of the practices we had adopted, could we have had better water retaining soils? And so you know there is a it's only when we get incidents like we're seeing of climatic conditions that are, are put additional stress on plants that actually regenerative farming um there or there is a major advert for regenerative farming. So soils that haven't that aren't got Uh, aren't rich in organic matter um, as a result of the practices that we've adopted then actually they're not retaining the water levels at the same uh, rate that somebody who has been looking after their soils and has high organic matter levels and then in a drought year that will benefit them so it uh, unless you're prepared to do specific analysis and, and yield analysis of how a conventional farming system works against a regenerative one, well, it, 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 we'll never know. But it will be interesting to see if tests like that have been carried out in a year like this with a drought to see, has that made a difference? Have those the soils with higher organic matter levels, which have been farmed under a regenerative agricultural method, have they produced higher yields? As a result of having better water retaining qualities,
1: that's a good thought, and that's um, that's getting my cogs whirring for a potential guest for a podcast because I think there's some people out there who, who might know a bit about this and um, be on such yeah. farms. So yeah, hopefully we can follow this up.
2: And and that and that links back to your point. Sorry to to keep going, but it comes back to provisioning. I mean, provisioning is all about, is all about providing, but in the best possible manner. And you know we should be looking, at, and, it, and it makes good business sense as well, to maximise the assets we've got. Coming back to the original conversation at the start of the podcast, it's about land management, land use, and, and how do we uh, utilise land to, to the best effect.
0: Martin, I see you've joined us. Welcome welcome to the show. Yeah, sorry for the my lateness,
3: Matthew. I have uh, was busy having a sit down with an, an architect there to design a new farmsteading for a client. And it uh, really interesting actually that in the regen agriculture future farming policy has been a big part of our decision making in the design structure layout of the new steading. And um, yeah, for sure, I don't know if we'll require a big fertiliser storage requirement moving forward given the price. So yeah, it's, uh, it's challenging given the, the sheer uncertainty in the sector just now, even even looking at a new farm farmsteading site. So yeah, apologies for my lateness, but uh, looking forward to the conversation.
1: Are there other things that you are taking into account? We've just been talking about mob grazing and, and better pasture management. And is that, does that influence the way things like steadings are starting to be designed?
3: A big part of what Ian and I, Ian and I discuss with our farming clients is having that flexibility and and, able, and being able to adapt to change. And that's what we're looking to really build into this steering and, and, and in a sense of uh, being able to perhaps, you know, house sheep breeding use over the winter for a period to reduce winter uh, grazing um, requirements. So we're building that in. I touched on fertiliser, but in a serious point, we've looked at having a, a larger uh, midden for holding dung for longer periods of time to be more flexible and being able to apply dung throughout the well, throughout the, the summer really of course you're not you can't apply dung in the midwinter in, a, in the west coast but um, being able to have that flexibility over a spring summer period to apply dung just to maximize that that nutrient benefit really so no, it's been really interesting in the design phase of it all that we're just tr- trying to have provision. flexibility is built in Eleanor.
1: Yeah I think that raises a really important point in all this is is how what the scale of the changes that we're facing Uh, we talk kind of glibly about a transition to net zero and a transition to regenerative production we don't really know what that's going to look like in practice Mm. what we do know is that it's going to be a long and fairly messy route to get there and there's so many factors of markets and food production and, and carbon um, markets and policy and we don't know how these are all going to play out and um, everyone's going to have to reinvent everything really in the way we we produce food and, and materials and I suppose one of I, I would see one of the role of um, people like yourselves is is sort of being able to um, support farmers um, and producers through that through that period and, and being able to kind of hold that um, that uncertainty and and they create resilience to change and openness to change and the ability to be um, perhaps much more agile and and adaptive than um, farming yeah. said to be would, would that be a fair um, comment it
2: it, it it is and and it and it's an exciting time for us as advisors um, because we do have a, a real opportunity to to shape the countryside and and uh, and change farming, uh, and and policies for that matter. What I would say is that farmers can quite often um, be criticised for not adopting to change, which I, I entirely disagree on, actually. I think farmers are very uh, resilient to change and can adopt change quite quickly. Um, and as a result of that, I think there's there will be some real positive stories to come out of this, uh, as there is already. Um, there's some quite clever, um, quirky uh, farming stories out there who are early adopters into regenerative agriculture. Um, and that twinned with business is where I think we've got an exciting future. So I see this as an opportunity to the industry rather than uh, a burden or uh, you know a, a, any, any enforced change. I think it's something that we're, we're going to evolve into naturally. We we're As I said earlier, we're very lucky that we hold the assets, which are the key to a lot of the answers to climate change. As a result of that, it it is exciting. That's a better place to be in than, than a business which has no connection to natural capital assets, uh, but yet is staring down the barrel of becoming net zero. It's very easy for uh, a land manager or a farmer to become net zero because they hold the assets which allow them to be able to achieve that a lot of business doesn't and therefore that the business that doesn't will have to form connections and relationships with the landed sector in order to satisfy their own net zero requirements so when you twin that alongside um, sustainable food production they're, and the ability to reshape our countryside, it's a hugely exciting time for the industry. Um, Martin and I have been involved in agri-environmental schemes for a number of years now, and there's nothing more satisfying to revisit a property five, ten years later where you... I mean, I know, I know of one client where we introduced six kilometers of hedging for example and this was a fairly barren landscape that didn't have a lot of envir- environmental or habitat features as a result of the introduction of the six kilometer of hedging the the, the wild bird species the species rich grassland etc the difference in in that property in a five ten year uh, time scale was phenomenal but to go back and revisit that and see the impact that you've had on that landscape is, is hugely satisfying. Did,
3: did that client, Ian, look to use the fencing from a practical side, i.e. to alter their mob grazing or grazing patterns as, as a result of that it, scheme?
2: It, it has a dual effect, uh, yeah. Martin. There's the there's the, the benefit of being able to, and, and prior to you joining the conversation, we were talking about mob grazing mm. and, and basically livestock farming in a regenerative Uh, agricultural world it will look at smaller paddocks as opposed to the more the, the pattern in the last few decades where we've moved to bigger fields because that that allowed for more efficient farming and and economies of scale but actually we need to reverse that and go back to smaller paddocks now introducing hedgerows to split paddocks up and the fencing it all has that dual effect
0: you just mentioned there about the British countryside and landscape and things like that. If if I'm going through the British countryside in ten, fifteen years' time, uh, what's your vision of how the landscape would be looking? And uh, open it up to everybody, sorry as well. Yeah, I, I think
2: I would like to see more hedgerows. I would like to see us um, by that stage have introduced more regenerative techniques whereby we can see the impact on the countryside both from a habitat point of view and from a um, biodiversity point of view we've agriculture has taken us down a route where we have larger fields and actually in the uk we have a relatively good mosaic of countryside so we're not like some of the other countries globally around the world who have huge um where field sizes are effectively hundred hectares uh, we're not like that so we shouldn't beat ourselves up but we do have an ability to add add more to the the landscape by the introduction of hedgerows or uh, shelter belts uh, some pond life so could we be creating more in the in the way of what um water on our farms, is that a good way to retain it to effectively create reservoirs? So again, having that dual effect for providing irrigation sources but but in a sustainable way? Um, could those uh, res- effectively irrigation reservoirs be um, could they have a, a strips around them which host? some woodland, but a mixture of shrub areas and uh, potentially bumblebee strips. And then we've got to dovetail that in with the community. And then could we open up access as a result of that? So could we? It's, it's looking at potentially poorer areas of our farming, our farms our estates and identifying where we could enhance biodiversity in those areas and potentially opening up access, all of which um are buzzwords at the moment in terms of it's satisfying what effectively integrated land management should be.
3: I suppose that opens the floor up to me, but Ian stole all my my points. So I I suppose one of the points I would like to add is, um, I suppose you can't see it, Matthew, but I I would like to see a greater um, um, knowledge and understanding between farmers and these new practices but also from members of the public as in, in 10 years time I'd like to see them having a greater, greater understanding of what landowners what farmers are actually carrying out and what they're implementing on the ground I have quite a few non-rural non-farming friends and I find it sometimes quite scary actually their lack of knowledge and understanding of What's carried out? What's being undertaken at the moment already, and you know, farmers and landowners it's sometimes miss. They they are doing a lot of good right now in general. You know, they've done a lot of great stuff. Ian's touched on environmental schemes that are being carried out. They've they've added a lot and they've done a lot, and I think there's huge potential to expand that. But I suppose it's going back to just getting communities involved getting communities understanding what's happening. I think that's what I would like to see, you know, understand where their beef, where their bread, where their milk, where their strawberries are coming from and getting them interested in it and supporting it because, you know, the UK has have, has some of the highest welfare standards in the world. You know, it has some of the highest quality barley in the world.
2: And and it adopts some of the best, uh, most sustainable pr- uh, principles of farming in the world. If you look at our red meat sector, it's the most sustainable in the world because it's largely off a grass fed diet. Now I I accept that we can, we can do a lot more, but the the basic principle of what we've got is misunderstood actually, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think educating, is a is a would be a big step forward, um, alongside educating ourselves as farmers to, to be better. So there is a dual effect. Interestingly, you know, the, nothing irritates me more than you've got uh, a, a local village starts complaining about the smell from um, farmyard manure or hen litter that's been spread on a, on a field. But yet that is the very principles that we need to be adopting. But the, and that comes back to your point of education, Martin, you know, they need to understand that that is a more sustainable, sustainable method of farming. And just living with a smell for seven to 10 days actually is a healthy thing.
0: In your roles as such, is this something that you you find that people come to you with these kind of questions?
2: They do. But one of the things that we have done, Matthew, is we, on some, some of our clients' properties, we've done Open Farm Sunday and they've been a huge success. Where uh, effectively, you open up the farm to the public. You put on certain demonstrations, and there's different different parts of the farm. So there's machinery set out. They've they can get an understanding of what each item of machinery does. There could be livestock sections, and they can understand the you know the 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 breeding cycle of those various animals. Uh, and then there can be education centres within that, which focus on soil health etc so we have adopted that and we are we do try to get involved with with the public and education in general and several of us actually go one stage further where we sit on panels or we help judge things etc which are all connected back to to the the community
1: it's interesting how um as you're talking there's this um in in this regenerative production concept there's sort of two ends there's a there's a very technological end where we utilize um, utilise robots and mapping and technology to do things much more precisely and, and, and intelligently. And on the other hand, there's an ecological aspect and there's working with the processes of nature and using natural pollinators, natural um, cycles of manure and grazing and, and starting to replicate more natural systems. And they these kind of go along in tandem. And I think going back to the question of what the countryside will look like, um, I'd love to see um, much more innovation much faster innovation and this is a challenge not just for uh, for farmers perhaps they have to drive it but the the interest and the investment has to come from the whole of society Um, both on the kind of ecological end so production systems like forest gardens where you're actually producing food in a um, in a in a complete woodland setting um, or vertical farming where you're producing food um, maybe not in the countryside at all but in a um, uh, in a in a in a building with very controlled um conditions um that kind of innovation i think are both going to be important and and kind of rethinking um what we mean by farming in the and i think you're right that farming is able to change quite quickly and we've seen um, all kinds of um, new innovations coming in a lot of scottish countryside was transformed by um by use of polytunnels for fruit growing which has actually been um massively Useful in, in producing a lot more and over a lot longer the season, um, but different innovations. Um, so that's a bit of a, a challenge and perhaps. Um
2: I think it is. I think it is. But you've you've just answered the point, Eleanor. That you know we fruit growers if we take it in isolation there fruit growers move to polytunnels they've moved to glass houses, glass houses which are, heat, are are heated by biomass units so that comes back to my point and reiterates it that actually the sector is hugely welcoming of change and you've got to remember that they're business owners and first and foremost they run businesses so it at the end of the day it's all about return on capital employed, it's about profit margins and actually in order to do that and stay ahead of the game you have to adopt change yes that we've got probably a, a, a seismic change around the corner there, there is a balance as well to be had here, um, we don't I, I don't think it's healthy that all of a sudden every item of food is grown in a, in a vertical farming system for example there's whilst we should be adopting that and we should be exploring it further there is a footprint to to starting to to move uh, and and mm-hmm. have production coming out of vertical farming systems um so so it, it is it all come, for me it all comes back to balance and keeping perspective in it and i think they're going forward yes we need to adopt change there will be change uh, taken on board and 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 to great success but we, we also need to have a nice balance of the way we produce our food in many ways. I don't think it's a simply a case of stating that it all must be done a set way, because actually the geography of Scotland in itself or the UK changes so rapidly that we we have different environments and we should be tapping into those environment, to use your word, provisioning to best effect.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think going back to natural capital, um, it, it needs the market conditions to create that framework to push that innovation in the in the ways that we want it to go doesn't it? it needs it needs and what natural capital economics should do if it if it works well is is look at the whole chain of effect of a, an innovation um whether it's mob grazing or um regenerative arable or vertical farming or forest gardens or, or whatever it might or um changing landscape into um in into non-production and actually producing somewhere else for certain things that might potentially be more efficient. And and you can evaluate each of these um, on a, um, you know, you should be able to evaluate these in a a, a kind of level playing field rather than um, what often happens is you get into kind of value judgments. So that's why um, I think the more we can think in these natural capital ways and understand carbon impacts and understand supply chains and see um, how all these things add up. Um, the, the, the better for everyone we can start to make um, real really valuable choices about land use in a particular place at a particular time um, with those particular people as well because it 's not just about land it 's always about people and skills well, well,
2: well it, it is but you know it, what effect do we have on on the greater environment so one of the, the areas I think we we haven 't done enough is protecting watercourses and actually what impact does that have on sea life and then or or any water life for that matter and that has ramifications um, we you know way beyond what we've just what we've what we're doing on the land so if, you know at at a primary source I, I, you know I do think there's elements that we could be doing better it's interesting again Martin and I have through agri-environment climate schemes or or predecessor schemes have introduced water ma- margin management but actually when I drive around the country and coming back to Math- Matt's uh, question you know what, what would be what would you like to see in 10 years time I would like to see us having gone a whole step further in our management of water courses where we actually have even bigger buffers we've got those buffers actually have an active um, biodiversity uh, life next to them and there's some great examples of that. You, know, you can go up and down the countryside and see where people have increased riparian woodland or, or introduced areas of woodland to downwater courses to actually act as a greater buffer. And, and it's that type of example. In fact, our colleague Hugo Remnant was involved in a project in Northumbria, which is amazing. And, and it's projects like that that we need to be putting out there as an example.
1: That sounds like a future podcast, however I heard one. I had to get Hugo back. Hugo's been on before and was uh, an excellent panellist, so don't like to get him to talk about that.
3: I'm, I'm just worried I'm going to get ditched for Hugo moving forward, so I'll need to... <laughs> <laughs> From a Galbraith side of things, I, I see our role as to, it sounds very cheesy, but as to help and advise clients to, in order to achieve their objectives. We, our role is to challenge sometimes those objectives if we don't think that is right for them however we're fundamentally there to help and advise clients to the best of our ability we're we're carrying out a range of farm consultancy work for a range of different clients from clients who have you know 50,000 acres to clients who have literally 50 to hundred acres you know we're there to cover a a wide variety of people, wide well, variety of clients, wide variety of landowners. We're seeing a variety of different measures and and uh, examples being implemented. We've got a wide variety of experience from Inverness to Hugo down there in Hexham. You know, we we cover a, a wide area, and fundamentally, we're there to help. And we're carrying out natural capital assessments. We're carrying out carbon audits. As I just joined the call, I heard Ian chatting about measure and assessment, from my point of view right now, I think it's key to measure and assess where the businesses right now see where you are and start to look at what opportunities you have.
2: I think what's uh, prevalent about that, Martin, is going forward we're going to have uh, and England has already adopted change to its uh, basic payment scheme but Scotland has that round the corner too and you know by that very nature we can't simply collect direct pillar payments for 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 purely farming we're going to have to um provide greater public benefit and as a result of that we will need to uh, in Scotland yet yeah, we don't know quite what that looks like but there, it will be broadly equivalent to what's been introduced in England, and that is environment, further environmental schemes. And, you know, we will, because of the subsidy structure, we will need to look closer at um, our individual farms to see where we, where we can utilise them better for enhancing the environment, introducing biodiversity, because that's going to be the key to opening
0: up payments. As we start to wind down now, and we've reached the the stage of the the podcast where well, it's a new segment actually. It's called Ask Me Anything, and basically this is when people that get in touch with the show, whoever they may be, or speak to Eleanor or um, out and about, get in touch and just ask a general question. It can be totally random and uh, nothing related necessarily to that episode. But we're going to just kick it off with a question from Ian Stark, it has asked about companies who are setting up carbon projects directly, either by buying land or by working directly with landowners rather than buying offset offset credits. And he's asking if this is genuinely different from paying for offsets, or are they making a virtue claiming fuss over nothing special?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ian, for an excellent first question on my favourite topic of offsets. There's what we think an offset is doing, we think an offset is carbon capture and storage, um, and that that you're you're sucking in carbon to kind of uh, mitigate the carbon that you're offsetting. Actually, offsets and that's not really what an offset is. Um, When companies offset, they're saying, um, we know we've got this hard to reduce carbon. Um, Maybe it's something that we can't stop reducing this carbon because it's dependent on somebody else developing sustainable transport infrastructure or developing technology we haven't got yet. So while we wait, while we can't do that, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some money tackling this easy to fix problem somewhere else in the economy out with our supply chain. So um, restoring peatland in Scotland is a great example of this. Restoring forests overseas, you might um, uh, buy uh, credits that preserve the rainforest. And there's two ways companies can do this. They can can buy credits and the credit system has been set up so that companies who just want to say, yeah, we've spent the money, we've done a thing, um, we've ticked the offset box, can do that very easily Um, and can have them validated by a third party. They know they're credible. Um, They've done that. But there's a lot of companies who want to add some value, either with they've got their own resources beyond financial resources, innovation, ideas, expertise, um, local connections to a local economy, um, where it makes sense to do it more directly um, and to actually either, whether it's buying land or whether it's partnering with with local landowners or communities um, to uh, to do projects directly that have those um, that, that deliver those easy wins for carbon and then your credibility is in the fact that you've got that local immediate connection you've got that story you can say here we are on the ground doing this thing I think we're going to see a lot more of this and I think it's it's really important because that's where we're going to get the innovation and the solutions that, that the private sector can deliver and um, we don't want them just relying on, on sort of third parties. We want them stuck in there, actually getting involved in um, where they can in carbon solutions. So it is um, offsetting is, in a sense, it's a PR exercise. You're not actually, um, you're not actually solving all your carbon sins. Um, you're saying this is a temporary measure, but it is a really important exercise because it's demonstrating that you're a credible company who are dem- genuinely serious about tackling climate change. And,
2: yeah, I would agree, Elner, I think, you know, is topical, offsetting has taken a bit of a bashing, but, you know, at the end of the day, we do we do need to use these land assets, as I've mentioned, to try and solve the, the issue. And what better way to do it than to connect up with a project like you say, Eleanor, where you can have a tangible difference and you can have an influence and shape that project, rather than simply just buying carbon credits from a a woodland plantation which may have been done anyway um so i think the opportunity to be connected to a project and have an involvement and an influence on 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 change a lot a lot of what we've already talked about going on a journey with a landowner or a farmer to to implement that change it's got it's got to be a healthier solution
3: yeah i, I think that's a good question I, I think there's a lot to that question. I think, I think I'll give a very short answer because I think Eleanor and Ian have covered a lot of the points is that, uh, you know, we are involved in a lot of these negotiations and discussions with our clients today and have been doing so and are doing so right now. I was literally on a call this morning with a client about this very, this very thing, um, offsetting uh, discussion, companies approach them, what do we do next? What do you think, Martin? So there's a lot to, to be taken out of that. I think clients have got to be careful, take their time as they go back to research, learn, consider, have a chat to professionals and, and get the right advice, but take, take your time before making that, that big step.
0: Guys, I think that's just about all we've got time for. Uh, an excellent question there as well, which is, and thank you for uh, all three for answering it in your own way as well. It's, it's very good. That's definitely going to be a, a running feature for, for future episodes. So if you do have any questions, like I said, please do get in touch with Elner. You can uh, contact us on social media. Uh, we're at Galbraith Group right across, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, get in touch with our agents if you need if, as well. Um, Elner, like you said, you're, you're on Twitter especially as well. She's so very active on there. I, I just need to say thank you as well to my guests for coming on, uh, Ian. Hope for your debut an excellent an excellent debut. I'm sure everyone agrees. And thank you for joining us.
2: No, thank you, guys. Really enjoyed
0: Watch it. Yeah, we'll get the we'll get the cap uh, set out. Don't worry, don't worry. Um, And Martin as well. Uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to join us as well today. I appreciate you coming back on as well after a busy morning as well.
3: Oh, that's okay. Apologies for my lateness. I'll be I'll be on time next time,
0: Matthew. I can assure you. Don't you worry. No worries. We'll hold you to it next time. Eleanor, as well as always, thank you very much for for joining me today.
1: Always, always a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to next time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and next time, of course, it fits right in there. We have got Peter Cairns from Scotland, uh, Scotland, the Big Picture. He's going to be coming on in advance of their Autumn Conference, um, which is taking place in, in next month. So, looking forward to having Peter on there. And of course, any questions that you have for Peter, um, please do get in touch with us as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this because um, Peter, if uh, anyone on Uh, Twitter will have seen Peter and uh, his a wonderful photographer and real visionary for rewilding so we're going to get stuck into the topic of rewilding Um, and I've got a list of questions that I'm very much looking forward to asking him and, and having a really interesting discussion.
0: It's been great to be back on the show and we'll be back soon but until then I've been Matt Finlay and thanks for listening.